You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Dan Simmons is the Hugo Award-winning author of science fiction novels that include Hyperium, Ilium, and Olympos. The Joe Kurtz mystery novels, including Hard Case, Hard Freeze, and Hard as Nails, horror novels that include Summer of Night, Children of the Night, and A Winter Haunting. The historical novels, The Crook Factory, and The Terror. His new book is Drood. Thank you for joining me, Dan. It's always a pleasure, Rick. One of the things that hovers over this book, and this is very interesting, is mesmerism. This was at a time when electricity and invisible forces were first being discovered. So we, our perception of the world just radically changed. And all of a sudden, a lot of things that never made sense or seemed magical all of a sudden became the province of science. Um, tell me a little bit about the early days of mesmerism and Charles Dickens' interest in it. Yeah, well, Dickens was obsessed with it. And he studied, uh, I believe his name was Professor Elliot, Dr. Elliot. He studied with the England's foremost master of mesmerism, and Dickens himself practiced it as a practitioner helping clients, as it were. He didn't charge, but he felt he could mesmerize people to the point he could solve the most serious psychological problems. And he was able to do something, and besides being able to hypnotize people with his mesmeric passes and chants, um, he, he worked with... Uh, one woman in Europe to the point that his wife, Catherine, before he tossed her out, put her foot down and said, no no more rushing off to this woman's side at 4 a.m. It was all proper. The husband, Lord, whatever his name was there. But Dickens uh, was, it was almost like an exorcism. Only through his mesmerism could this woman uncurl from a fetal position she'd wrap herself in. And she had these, this demon who was visiting her at night in her dreams. And only through Dickens's mesmerism could he help. But his wife said, no more of that. So he and this lady, even though they were traveling separately in Europe, decided that 2 p.m. every day, Dickens would do his mesmeric passes, and she would put herself, quote, in a receptive state. And uh, there is a true story that they're traveling in Europe, and Dickens is inside the coach. And his wife, Catherine, who got coach sick, was riding up on the box up above outside. And she had no idea that Dickens was doing these 2 p.m. mesmeric consultations by distance. And when he was doing his mesmeric passes alone in the carriage, Catherine, his wife, up above, fell into a mesmeric trance. And she actually dropped her muff, which fell aside, and they had to stop the carriage, which is how they found out what Dickens was doing. So he took it extremely seriously. And it was a major, mesmerism was a major part of Wilkie's novel, but Dickens didn't feel that he used it properly. And I think it would have been an amazing surprise how important mesmerism was in the mystery of Edwin Drood. You have... (laughs) I think so, too. Now, um, one of the things that that I think is very, very interesting uh, uh, about this book is um, the way that um, Dickens unfolds as a as a character, he was really he was a dandy, wasn't he? I mean, we think about Dickens um, maybe as as a writer, but he was really uh, he was kind of a fashion plate and wanted to be out in front of people. He really did. He's. Reminds me of another literary friend of mine, Mark Twain, you know, who always had an excuse for wearing white suits the year round when that simply wasn't done. He always said, well, he hates how dirty men's black suits get, and I'm wearing a white suit to show how clean everything is. But the truth was, Mark Twain simply wanted to be noticed, especially later in his life. 
and Dickens from a very young age. He dressed as a dandy of the age, but then he dressed in outrageous ways that even the dandies hadn't discovered. And I would really love to see it, you know, these velvet, purple vests he wore, especially his waistcoats, the vests. They stood out from 100 yards away. Now, um, he made use of his his good looks and his powers in, in, in these readings you talk about, which play a really key role in, in, in the novel. Tell us a little bit about how mesmerism and even technology, he was an early adapter for technology um, in terms of, of what he did with his readings, wasn't he? Cutting-edge technology. And I appreciate you noting that when you read it. Even the readings are a strange part of his last five years. Why he chose to do that, it's hard to understand. Money? Yeah, sure. He made a lot of money in these readings, but he didn't have to. He had the money. If he'd taken those five years, his last five years, to write more novels, he just quit writing novels, he would have made the same amount of money without the wear and tear that probably killed him. He signed up for 80 readings in Scotland and England that were so exhausting First of all, he has post-traumatic stress syndrome, we'd say today, from the railway accident, so that even a simple, slow train ride to London caused him to shake and tremble. So he had to drink brandy just to, even to ride in a little pony cart. But now he's riding every day of his life, exhausting long days. I'm on a nine-day book tour here, day four, and I'm exhausted. And Dickens did this month after month by train, which was pretty rough travel. And psychologically, it took a great toll on him. But then when he got there, here's where the technology kicked in. First of all, he emptied out all these theaters so no one could sit out of his line of sight. The mayor of the town, Bristol, can't sit up on the stage with him. You have to be out with the others. I'm convinced it's because he really believed he could mesmerize three to 5,000 people in a huge theater. He really believed that he could not just give a reading and a performance, unlike anything we know today, but he would put them in a mesmeric, receptive state so that it was an experience unlike anything we can imagine. He believed it, and I, none of his biographers really talk about this, but he would allow no one out of his line of sight. He had all these conditions to, to put them in a mesmeric state, and then the technology. He had his own gas experts to rig this special lighting arrangement. He put a maroon screen on whatever the stage originally was like so that the, all the color led to him. He had a frame of high-powered gas jets, lights that framed him and his hands and his face and his eyes, which they had to see. Everybody had to, to see his eyes so he could control them. Everybody had to see his hands, which were very important to mesmerizing an audience. And actually, it was pretty dangerous rigging once it started to burn through. And uh, backstage, they were panicking because they knew if it fell, the whole theater would go up in a few seconds. But Dickens calculated that he had about... I don't know, two minutes left before it burned through and burned them all to death. So he shortened his reading to come out at one minute, 56 seconds, and they rushed out and fixed the lighting. But he was an expert, and he did this week after week after week. It so exhausted him that he couldn't stand. Halfway through the reading, he'd go backstage. He had 15 minutes, and they had to redress him because he was soaked through his sweat. And then he'd go out for the hard half of his reading where he killed Nancy. Bill Sykes killed Nancy. And that's where the women fainted and the men started shaking. And instead of going to bed in the hotel that night, which at least I'm allowed to do most nights before leaving at 5 a.m. the next morning on a plane, he had to get out of town as much as he feared trains. He had to leave because he had blood on his hands. He had killed Nancy in front of thousands of people. He was in bad shape. 
as you were putting this book together, as I'm when I'm reading this book, I'm just thinking, boy, I just never knew all this really great stuff about <laughs> Charles Dickens. I mean, every page is this really interesting revelation and, and bits of his life and, and, you know, mixed in with this plot with the with the evil Drood. Um, you have a timeline, presumably, of what happened in Dickens' life. And then you've got your novel. Could you talk about sliding in the pieces of your novel, inventing and put? Because there's lots of letters in here. I presume all the letters that we see are actual letters of his? All the letters are verbatim. Uh, his, Wilkie's, the other characters. So it's not just one historical figure's life. You have to figure out hour to hour what they were doing, what they were saying. But it's everybody, every historical figure, and they're all historical figures except for Drood, who may or may not have been, he becomes a person in mine story. But everybody has to have their timeline and hourly um, reality, which I didn't mess with. Uh, part of the challenge for me, you know, is playing tennis with the net up, as Robert Frost used to say about verse, and the net was rhyme. And for me, the net is getting it right as to where those people were and what they were doing and saying. If I express a historical figure's opinion about anything, about somebody else's book, about his own book, about another person... Uh, I have to find that opinion expressed by that person about that time in a letter, in a diary somewhere. So the game becomes interesting on that level. But then as my fictional story gets more compelling to me, I can't speak for the reader, as I want to just write about the fictional stuff, I look down in, in my notes and so forth and, well, damn, you know, Dickens has to be at this banquet at 4 p.m. It doesn't fit in with the fictional side of things, but i got to get him to that banquet so he can say what he actually said. So that's fun. Mr. Drood, the title character. Ah, yes. I, I, I love this this apparition. And I have to ask, was this, the way you describe him reminds me of a very famous painting that was recently stolen and returned, The Scream. Oh, The Scream has always affected me. I saw it when I was a kid. Uh, that's good. I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about creating this character, Drood, and because this draws on a, a on a, another level of uh, Victorian literature, um, it, which is the the great uh, India Hindu mysteries, and also I have to say, it reminded me quite a bit of uh, your very first novel, Song of Kali. Yes, I have a mystery poet in Song of Kali, and his he owed a, a Calcutta poet who ended up owing a lot to the goddess Kali. And Drood, uh, in one story, remember in in my novel Drood. I interrupt myself. In my novel, Drood, we don't have just one totally unreliable narrator through Wilkie Collins, but he is telling us things that Charles Dickens is telling him, and Charles Dickens is an unreliable narrator for various reasons we discover in the story. He may be totally lying to Wilkie through this whole thing. He may be using his powers not just of logic but also of mesmerism on Wilkie, which is an awful idea because poor Wilkie is so besotted with his laudanum. Uh, but Drood... Is he real? Is he really a character? If he is, he does, just as you say, he enters into many of the strands of literature at the time, sensationalist literature. He is an Egyptian prince, or he was raised as, he was the bastard son of a British nobleman who was later murdered, uh, possibly by Drood, who was raised in a secret society of Egyptians who in the 1840s and 50s were studying the old religion and who was there to bring the gods back. At one point, there's a prediction of the future of London in the 20th century with huge pyramids rising in it and these great temples of Karnak 
and so forth, you know, as, the, as Drood's minions take over London. And it sort of happened in a different way. Speaking of the future, uh, I, I love the, the technique you use of having uh, Wilkie uh, stop and address the, the reader in their um, science fiction to him future. So it, it's kind of an interesting way for you to get to play with a genre that you love to, to experiment with, yes. that, you, that you write well in. <laughs> well, it, it, all my life I've wanted to write something where I could say, Dear Reader, and this is the book where I finally got to do that, had an excuse. One thing that also hangs over this book, and this was I found this really interesting, is disease. Wilkie Collins suffers from gout. Now, I, I kind of had thought that gout was you know something of the past. Although now I'm, I'm I mention this to my wife. She goes, "Oh no, I know somebody who has gout." Tell us a little bit about gout and why, what it is, and how it affected uh, Wilkie's life as a man and as a writer. When you read biographies of any. Buddy from that era, gout is always. If they don't have it, somebody in their family does. And I thought it was. I thought it was not just a mystery disease that disappeared with the 1800s, but uh, um, just a wrong diagnosis that we now know what it is. But uh, some years ago, I finished a big book, and my wife and I went off on a very rare vacation to Hawaii, and she got very sick, and I took her to an emergency room in Hawaii, and they said, "You have gout." And I just laughed. And she didn't appreciate that, actually. She was in a lot of pain. Her foot was swollen. Her leg was swollen. They said, it's gout. And in those days, they knew that good living, too much good eating and so forth, leads to gout, too much drinking. And I don't think that's accurate. I don't know what it is. And I know at the time they didn't believe Wookie when he said he was taking all these drugs, morphine and all laudanum, for his gout because his gout crept around his head. It started behind his eye and moved to the back of his head. You know, when you have gout, you put your foot up. You're swollen somewhere. But it seems to be everywhere. There, It fascinates me how every era, almost every generation, has its own strange diseases that come and go. One of the diseases of this time, in the 1850s, 60s, and 70s, was hysteria for women. That was the main reason for women being institutionalized in madhouses. They suffered from hysteria. It's not a big problem these days. Now, um, I have to ask because Dickens is sick through much of this novel and very sick at the end. He, di- he dies. What did he have? Do we know now what killed Charles Dickens? Yeah, we have pretty good medical clues. He had a good doctor for the time, although the solution then was bleeding you. you know, they were still bleeding people, so it wasn't great medical care. But they did keep track of his symptoms. When he was a child, he had some sort of serious kidney problem on the left side. I say that as somebody who wrote this book with serious kidney problems on the left side and nine kidney stones. So at least I could identify with Wilkie Collins' pain and maybe with his drugs. But Dickens had a serious kidney problem that almost killed him when he was young. And whenever he got not just ill but depressed and run down as an adult, this kidney problem would come back. And it seems to have led to heart problems. And it was probably the, the kidney problem created heart problems, which created a stroke. Sounds too complex, but that's what probably got him down. But I like to think that it was that reading tour that killed him. Without that, I think we would have been writing for another 20 years. That reading tour, um, there. one of the things that um, you talk about in that is that uh, um, Dickens, when he was doing this, he was really calling on his, this these resources within himself as an actor. And, and he... That's, I think, one of the things that that uh, 
made him such a good writer was was the fact that he was able to act. He was good at creating characters because he was good at becoming them. Yes, and that's probably true. Most of the great writers, the greatest writers, the ones who give us characters, have what uh, John Keats called native capability. They're able to project themselves into other minds and people without drawing any judgment about them. And, of course, Shakespeare had the greatest negative capability of anybody we know of in any culture, any time, in any medium. His smallest characters would suddenly come alive because, as one wonderful critic put it a couple centuries ago, even the smallest characters didn't know they were fictional constructs. They thought they were people. And Dickens's creations, like Shakespeare's, didn't understand themselves. They were so human, they're like us. They really didn't understand themselves but they knew they were important because they were real human beings, and they just pop into existence. Uh, I think it was Virginia Woolf, in fact, I'm sure of it, who very snippily, sarcastically said that when Dickens came to a turn in the plot he couldn't master, rather than work out the plot, as we better writers do, he just threw a couple of characters, new characters, on the fire. And my response to Virginia Woolf would have been, well, let's see you create dozens, scores of characters that are memorable for centuries, for, for millions of readers. The average writer like me can work an entire lifetime and not create one character that exists beyond the time the book is closed, much less for 100 years and more. And he was so fertile, Dickens was, with creating characters that it actually most writers' strengths are their weakness. Now, this idea of the characters, the uh, writer creating the characters, leads us to another theme in your novel that I really loved. And we talked a little bit about this earlier, was uh, doppelgangers. Um, you, uh, I was gonna, that was one thing I wanted to ask you. Wilkie Collins had seen this other Wilkie from childhood, I guess. Yes, he really did. This is true, and it's, I don't think it's emphasized enough in the few biographies that Wilkie has. Because if I were a biographer, I'd focus and try to get every shred of anything he'd ever written or said about his doppelganger. But it, it, it gave me a free field to, uh, in the fictional side of things, to build on what I knew had happened. I mean, but we only heard it third hand about Wilkie. But not only did Wilkie, at, when he's at the worst of his gout pain, this strange gout that always hit him when he was depressed for whatever reason, uh, that he's taking so many drugs he can't think or get out of bed or even speak well, but he tries to dictate the best parts of the Moonstone, the Miss Clack chapters in the Moonstone, which are the only parts I really find readable, those were written by the other Wilkie. And, I mean, that's just historical record that he, he would admit to interviewers that the other Wilkie wrote those. Now, there are other doppelgangers, too. Um, to a certain extent, Collins and Dickens, uh, the two Druids, and even, uh, as a more general theme, the the writers and characters, and the double lives of authors. How many lives lives are you leading, Dan? Oh, I'm not going to tell. <laughs> but, I, you know, I really appreciate the fact that you mentioned that and you noticed that. Um, I sound like an aggrieved, every aggrieved author in the world, but you have certain themes and things that you structure novels around. And even if you get 50 nice reviews, if it's not noticed, you know, this the fact that everybody has a double or several doubles, um, and if it's not noticed, you feel a little hurt. And so I'm just jumping up and down here that you notice it was there. In a sense, uh, Dickens was the double that Wilkie wanted. He wanted to look in the mirror and see Charles Dickens. And Charles Dickens, in a certain sense, was terrified of looking in the mirror and seeing Wilkie Collins. So it added a lot of zest to their relationship. 
who wouldn't be? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Wilkie was not a, a very for for how um, handsome and dashing uh, Charles Dickens was. Wilkin, Wilkie Collins, unfortunately, had none of those uh, fortunate characteristics, did he? No, he was always short, a little gnome of a man. He was always had this he, from childhood had this huge bulbous forehead that. Looks like a cartoon, really. He always was uh, had problem with his eyes, so he had these pop bottle thick glasses on. He uh, had no chin, so he grew this big beard, and uh, he was always an odd little sight. He was a ladies' man, though, so go figure. Um, speaking of ladies, one of the ladies of the period who was spurned repeatedly by Charles Dickens was the Queen of England. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't spurn the Queen, but he did. He had good reasons. Uh, she came to his production of The Frozen Deep, which was his and Wilkie's play about the Franklin expedition. And uh, she was so moved that uh, she wanted him to come out for an audience. But in those days, whenever they put on a serious play, they had a, a farce afterwards. And he was still dressed up in his clown suit for the farce. And that was his excuse for not coming out to talk to the queen. And then she asked for a command performance at Buckingham Palace. And bring your daughters, she said. And he turned her down again, saying that when he introduced his daughters to Her Majesty, he did not want to do so in a theatrical context. And she seemed to take it well. And then finally they did when he was uh, on his last legs, literally, when he was having trouble standing in his last year. They had a long audience together where they chatted about how difficult it is to get good servants and the price of meat and a little bit about theater and art. And uh, you're not allowed to sit down around the queen. And she, so she very kindly stood, but she leaned on a sofa, and Dickens just had his walking stick to hold him up. He was afraid he'd just pass out. I love it. Bulwer Lytton, I believe it was. Maybe, no, it was Thackeray, excuse me, had had a similar audience with the queen, and Thackeray was in his 80s. And he just said, I know this isn't allowed, but I'm an old man. So he went and pulled over a chair and sat down for his audience. The, the literary cast of this novel is is absolutely stunning. I, I was just a thrill to, to see you bring in Mark Twain, Edgar Allan Poe. And Edgar Allan Poe gets a couple of notices here, not just as a person, but in some of the things that Wilkie does or maybe imagines he does. <laughs> yes, there's some uh, Edgar Allan Poe resonances there. And what I really like is the fact that uh, during... Uh, Dickens's first trip to America, I'm trying to remember the year, I believe it was 1842, Poe stalks Dickens. He's actually a groupie, a fan. It's sort of one of those things where every time Dickens stepped out of his hotel, into the hotel lobby or out the door, there was this Poe in Baltimore and so forth waiting, I'm your number one fan. And they did talk, and he did go to Poe's home, and uh, it uh, Poe gave him this huge... Uh, his first collection of stories, of horror stories. And Dickens, you know, when authors are on tour, people thrust books into your hand. How they think you're going to get it home when you have one little bag, I don't know. But And here's Dickens in a strange land. So Dickens just gave it to his wife, who was traveling with him on that tour. And she read the Poe and found it terrifying. Um, one of the things that, that, uh, this, that you talk about quite a bit in here is, of course, uh, Dickens' fiction. And, and we get to, to uh, see firsthand the creation of the mystery of Ed, Edwin Drood. Tell us a little bit about... Now, 
this has been when I just did a, a search on uh, Bookfinder. I, I went to because I was interested in in you know seeing if I could score a first edition of Edwin Drood, which you, I could for like two hundred fifty bucks. I was wow. I was pretty I was pretty stoked. Um, but there are a bazillion people who have tried to finish it. Um, you have your present your own solution. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about creating that solution. Well, I'm part of a mob. Um, what sets me apart, perhaps, from the hundreds, as you say, hundreds of attempts to complete the mystery of Edwin Drood, because Dickens dropped dead halfway through. He'd done about half the installments. And uh, I, you, you could probably correct me on this, but I think the mystery of Edwin Drood is unique. Notice no adjective before unique, no very or really, just unique means one of a kind in the sense that it's the only mystery I know of which is still a mystery. Most other mysteries, even if they're not completed, are obvious enough that they've been figured out by smart people. But the mystery of Edwin Drood, no one knows how he was going to resolve it. Um, no one. And I've read these mystery writers have tried, and they've been very clever and very convoluted. And I just say, wow, that was great effort, but that's not Dickens. And what I was interested in, first of all, is why he left no notes. Every other book he's ever written, he used to have the habit of taking a sheet of blue foolscap and folding it into three, and on the left-hand side writing a list of the themes he wanted in the next sections, and on the right-hand side actually breaking down the chapters. He left no notes like that for his last book, The Mystery of Edwin Drood. He left no notes for the artist, what to do next, which is very unusual. They have to know what to draw. These are illustrated books. And the few clues he gave to the artist have led us astray, I think. So what I'm suggesting in my novel, Drood, is that A, the reason he did it was to show Wookie Collins how it should be done. I really believe that now, you know, but who am I? But he was going to write the grandfather of all great mysteries, and he knew how to do it. And he was going to create a detective character that was truly astounding, that we really didn't get in the first half of the book. He's in disguise, and he seems like a clown. In fact, he forgets he's wearing a wig. We don't know who the detective is, which other character he is. Nobody's ever figured that out satisfactorily, but... He seems like a clown because he keeps uh, forgetting he's wearing a wig, and every time he doffs his hat, it's really his hair. So, well, you know, what's with that? But I think he would have been a great detective character, and I think between the mesmerism and the opium and the subplots, we would have had Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde 20 years earlier. That would have been a surprise. Now, um, one of the things that, that Dickens did when he was writing his novels, again, way ahead of his time, he was also, and Wilkie Collins was, was like this as well, they were both adapting them to the stage as they were writing the novels. And there was a, they had to get it out there fast before somebody else did. You're right. Piracy was just universal. It got a little better in Dickens' lifetime, partially because of Dickens' effort on copyright, cutting down on piracy. But it was just everything was fair game for anybody who wanted to steal a, both reprinting in America, the literary editions, but everywhere stealing it for the stage. There was no law prohibiting somebody to take your brand new book in manuscript and adapting it to the stage. So you're right, both Wilkie, Wilkie got better at it than Dickens ever was, was get that thing on the stage even before I finished the book. Now, speaking of adaptations, this book has been uh, um, optioned, I understand. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, many things are optioned and few are chosen. And of those few <laughs> chosen, I haven't had one yet that's actually on the screen, although things are getting pretty close. In fact, as of today, something fun is happening. But with Drood, it was great fun because uh, I've been in indirect contact for a lot of years with the film director Guillermo del Toro, 
I admired his one of his first films, Kronos. Kronos, what a wonderful book with, with movie with that little uh, robot thing. Yeah, it was almost like a scarab that could crawl inside you. <laughs> uh, but uh, and I once sent him um, my novel on his request, carrying comfort both in English and in Spanish. Then he found it more comfortable, but it was a poor translation in Spanish. But in this case, he asked to see the manuscript for Drude while I was still revising it. And so I sent him 994 pages of manuscript. And uh, the story is from Del Toro that he got to page 600 and something and just put it down and went to the, this part I know is true, he went to the president of Universal and said, I want to make this movie. And they reminded him, you're going to New Zealand for several years to make the two Hobbit movies. So reportedly, reported by Del Toro, he said, as soon as I get back, that's the first movie I want to make. Drute. And who's to argue with Guillermo del Toro right now? He's hot. Uh, not me. <laughs> <laughs> he also he asked me, would you like a blurb? And I've never seen a blurb from a movie director in a book that hasn't been turned into a movie yet. But, you know, why not? I took it. I, and it's a great blurb, too. <laughs> I, uh, let me excuse the rumpling here sure. while I grab a book. But uh, here's the blurb that del Toro sent me. And I like it because it says so much about Guillermo del Toro's psychology and about the strength of his movies, his best movies. He writes of Drude, but also I think of his own obsessions and passions. Quote, a dazzling journey through a crooked, gaslit labyrinth and a tenebrous portraiture of the tortured minotaurs that dwell within. Genius is the true mystery and its edge, the abyss. End quote, Guillermo del Toro. And, I mean, who knows better about labyrinths than Guillermo del Toro? Now, uh, another one of your books that's been long, people have been waiting for, I think, 25 years at this point uh, to, to come to the screen is Hyperion. And I understand there's some uh, action on that, is there? Well, the, all the Hyperion, the four novels and the one novella that make up my Hyperion universe, it's all I've ever written on the subject have all been purchased, not option, but purchased by Graham King Films and Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers has now, a, they have a screenwriter and they've assigned a director, Scott Derrickson, whom I know. He actually, he and I worked on adapting a script years ago for Hyperion. So uh, Scott was the director most recently of the remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still. Movie, the original movie I always had problems with. I thought it was fascist. when I went to see the remake I thought oh they'll get rid of that 1950s fascism you know you you quit fighting or we'll kill all of you and your dog too and so instead they made it I think environmental fascism which is more in vogue today but we'll see how uh, if Scott gets to do it we'll see what he he does with the Hyperion material and are you what's your next book are are you working on another uh, 900 page historical uh, piece of fiction I am proud to say I'm writing a short novel, almost finished with it, a few weeks after I end this tour. It's a thing called Black Hills, and it is historical. It's set in, obviously, the Black Hills of South Dakota. But it starts with a, a young Lakota Sioux boy in 1876 named Pehasapa, which means Black Hills. And it wasn't their custom to name kids male or female after places. But this boy counts coup on a dying soldier. It turns out it'd be... George Armstrong Custer the second he dies at the Little Bighorn. And he has to go through life with this ghost in him. And it kept the the little book ping-pongs back and forth between 1876 and 1936, where Pehasap is now working on carving Mount Rushmore. And because of a vision he's had, he's chief powder man. He's chief dynamiter on the project. And on August 30th, 1936, FDR is coming to dedicate the Jefferson head, all four heads of, 
are there. But you know, dedicate Jefferson and Peha Sapa because of his vision is going to blow those heads right off the mountain. Wow. <laughs> we'll look forward to that. I've been speaking with Dan Simmons. His new novel is Drood. Thank you for joining me, Dan. Always a pleasure, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.